0: You're listening to the Alberta Advantage on CJSW 90.9 FM on Treaty 7 Territory in Calgary. My name is Kate Jacobson, and I produce the Alberta Advantage, where we offer analysis on Albertan and Canadian history and politics from a perspective that doesn't always get a lot of airtime.
1: Makes no difference where I go, you're the best hometown
2: I know, Hello, Calgary, Where I go, you're the best hometown I
0: know. Hello Calgary. Hello, Calgary, you know we love you. Hello and welcome to the Alberta Advantage. My name is Kate Jacobson and I am joined in studio today by fellow team Advantage member Joel. Hello hello. We are joined today over the phone by Nick Dreiger, who is the author of a recent piece entitled The Ugly Reality of Unions Under Social Democracy, published online at Organizing Work. You can check it out at organizing.work. Nick, thank you for joining us here on the podcast. Hi. Thank you. So we were very interested to read your piece and speak to you because it discusses many of the internal dynamics we saw play out in the Alberta NDP government, which is a favorite, uh, just dead horse to beat of this podcast. So we're pretty thrilled to have you on today. And the way your piece begins is by explaining the relationship between the NDP and the Alberta Federation of Labor. Could you talk a little bit about what the AFL is and what its role is in the new Democratic Party of Alberta?
1: So the Alberta Federation of Labor is what's called the House of Labor. So in in Canadian kind of the Canadian labour scene, the House of Labour is basically the labour central body that's all of the unions get together and then all of these unions together form an association that then becomes the sort of official voice of labour. Now there's a whole political history to that, unions used to be very politically diverse and who the House of Labour actually was was pretty contested, but you know the last several decades it's been the Alberta Federation of Labour and then the Canada Labour Congress that kind of speak as a hegemonic voice of labour. So. What the, the relationship between the NDP and Labour is, is that it's not just that Labour unions are supportive of, uh, of the NDP, like, say, with Bernie Sanders, but that they're an institutional part of the New Democratic Party. As in, in the Constitution, Labour is allotted a special rights and has seats on certain committees, including the key decision-making committees of the organization. And so the, the relationship, then, is, is one of, an, of a deep, institutional connection between these two organizations.
0: And you know in the piece that there's often this conception on the left writ large that the NDP needs to be pushed by labor as a way of kind of applying pressure from the left flank of the party. Is this generally the role that labor plays within social democratic parties? And is this the role that the labor movement played within the Alberta NDP?
1: No, absolutely not. Um, like, and I'm I'm not a historian, but I guess I'm a guy who reads a lot of history, um, and I'm a guy who pays a lot of attention to what's going on with unions and politics by virtue of the fact that I work for trade unions and have been involved with them since I was a teenager. Generally speaking, the later the labor leadership, and sometimes can play a progressive or even radical role inside a political party, but generally speaking, their relationship is a deeply conservative one, um, and. There's a number of factors to that, but, like, but the basic general thrust of it has been that unions are actually a force for conservative, uh, for conservative perspectives inside political parties, largely because of their own constrained view of what politics is, their own constrained view of what the role of a political party should be, and their own constrained role of the relationship that a union has to a political party and the limits that they impose on themselves for their own ability to be political.
0: Mm -hmm. So one of the most kind of shocking anecdotes you had in the piece for many uh, listeners in Alberta, I'm sure, is that the UFCW, which would be the United Food and Commercial Workers, actually expressed concerns that an increase to the minimum wage of $15 an hour would be detrimental to their members. Uh, Just because they're so involved in food and commercial work, oftentimes their members do make quite close to $15 an hour. So you have a trade union coming out against uh, something that is not only left-wing, but something that is, by all intents and purposes, a demand of the labor movement and very helpful to the labor movement. So that was one of the most shocking ones for me.
1: Absolutely. And I think that that it's really important to get into the dynamics of how collective bargaining works and what it does to mess with the brains of people involved in unions. Um, Their argument was, well, our employers say that they have a certain bottom line. And if they can't make that bottom line, they can't stay in business. And if we drive down that, if we basically funnel all that money into $15 an hour, we may not be able to get things like benefits packages. And there's, there's a lot going on there that really needs to be unpacked. One is whether or not you actually take a private business's assertion of what the bottom line actually is at face value. The second one is whether or not their business model is viable in internalizing that and making it your problem as a trade union. and And the third is a general conception of, having to balance the employer's interests against your own uh, before you even sit down and actually cut a deal. So generally speaking, it it really leads to a really messed up pressure then on the sorts of political demands that they demand, like things like on minimum wage and that kind of thing, because they start moderating their demands before they even go into the room because they're worried about what's going to happen at the bargaining table and what the and they're already hearing the employers' arguments. I don't think that unions have to be this way, but I do think that there's a tremendous amount of pressure on them to behave this way.
2: In a somewhat similar vein, uh, your piece makes makes this kind of note that. Some unions that had nothing to do with pipelines were actively pressuring the NDP and the AFL to tow the industry line that pipelines create jobs, even though all of the research that these same unions had done beforehand uh, basically indicated that this wasn't really the case.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that the reason for, that, for that, that perspective is that they get so wrapped up in outsourcing their politics, they have no sense of their own political possibilities or political agency as a union, that they think that the only way to express any sort of view of a better society or a view of what needs to be done with the world is through a political party. So all of a sudden, again, they're basically making all of these compromises on the vision and things that they have no real reason to care about in order to maintain that, that vehicle for politics that's really compromised from their perspective right from the beginning.
2: There was a single rare instance of discord between the Alberta NDP and the AFL, which occurred in January of 2016. The Alberta NDP had promised a royalty review as part of their 2015 election platform. Uh, And I'll just read directly from the 2015 Alberta NDP platform using my best Rachel Notley voice, even though I have a cold. The PCs have also refused to implement realistic oil royalties that the people who own the resources, all of us, deserve. The reason for this refusal is clear. Jim Prentice and the PCs are too close. Much too close to a small minority of Albertans who benefit from the status quo under the PCs, while the people of Alberta as a whole are deprived of much of the benefit of our own resources. Through these policies, we'll implement competitive, realistic royalty rates as prices rise to ensure full and fair value for Albertans as the owners of the resources. Like, first of all, it's just kind of amazing to think about that rhetoric uh, several years later. Um and then going on with this episode that happened in January of 2016, uh, they released their royalty review, as they had promised, and it basically recommended no major changes, with some analysts arguing that it, in fact, lowered their royalties even further. Um, and this is def- despite the fact that Alberta has some of the lowest, lowest royalty rates in the world. Saudi Arabia captures 85% of its oil and gas profits. Norway captures 78%. China captures, captures 64%. Australia captures 58% and Canada captures 33%. So all of this is the setup um, for this report coming out. The AFL's president, Gil McGowan, calls it a profound political mistake, saying it's an example of the government being captured by industry. This is a major accusation that would usually deserve some sort of follow-up. Why was this the last time we heard a critical word from the AFL about Alberta's NDP government?
1: I mean, people panic, right? Like, you heard it over the last two or three years of that government uh, that government in power, where basically every sort of contingency, any possible outcome, was weighed against. Well, what if the UCP gets in? And as a result, this filters into the trade union leadership, who again feel that the only way that they can make political demands, the only way they can espouse any sort of politics or assert any kind of control over their members, li- where their members can control any uh, control anything over their lives, is in the electoral sphere. So they think that basically by just saying, well, you know, if you get the right people elected, um you're going to you're going to be able to change things and what happens is when you get the right people elected they work backwards from that and they think that if you don't have the right people elected they can't get anything done so these union leaders then go into a full panic as soon as the government the government is criticized by unions which is on honest to god on uh, like in their own words they they think the unions should be there to pressure them from the left they complained also many people inside the government complained at many times that they wanted The trade unions to push them but the problem is that when the trade unions pushed them it was always oh no not like that
0: so one would think that with an ndp government in power which is theoretically worker-friendly unions, particularly public sector unions, would mobilize their members and push for really aggressive bargaining when anything was up for renegotiation. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what we saw from unions, particularly in the public sector while the NDP was in power, because you outlined basically three kind of discrete tactics that were used by the NDP to deal with public sector unions that they negotiated with during their time in government.
1: Absolutely. So these three tactics were basically part of an overall strategy. And the first tactic was to basically cut a deal on the political level with the trade union leadership that was most friendly to them. And in that, in those cases, what they did was they went to them and they basically, they were all on the same page. We don't want the UCP to get in. We feel that wage constraint will take pressure off of the public treasury, which will remove arguments in favor of tax increases, which will help the NDP's electoral prospects in the next election and let them fight Kenny. So, so that was the first one where they basically suppressed their own wages and moderated their own demands in order to keep the NDP in power because they felt that that was the best way to do it. Um, and that bit off a, a significant chunk of the trade unions. So right there, you've got them kind of removed from the game. And then the single biggest union that was left was AUPE. Now, AUPE, I think that one thing that I think I underplayed in the article that is worth saying is that there was also a certain amount of blind panic about what could happen if Kenny got in. And I think that that did motivate them cutting a deal. But them also co-opting Kevin Davideck was was a huge, huge coup for the government. And actually, like a pretty slimy move. What they did was they basically hired the chief negotiator of the single biggest union and some of the biggest bargaining units in the public sector in the province. And this guy had all the state secrets. He knew exactly what their capacity was to run a strike. It basically meant that AUP, A, couldn't even pretend to bluff at the table, and B, they knew exactly how a strike would play out and basically what their playbook would be because they had their chief negotiator in their pocket. So that obviously put AUP in a very compromised position. Now, the third was with the faculty associations. Now, these are a very small piece of the pie, Um, and generally what um, strategists on the employer side will do is they'll try and bite off a big chunk and then move to smaller and smaller units. So it's not surprising that the most hardball stuff happened with the smallest units that were basically outliers because basically they had the full weight of all the settlements prior to that working against them. So what they had then was the, was the faculty associations were isolated. And then what they did was they simply told the faculty associations, well, we're going to be changing legislation to put you guys under strike lockout. Now, you've got to keep in mind, this is not... Standard traditional trade union militants these are people who are university professors and teaching staff and on top of that all of their uh, all of their contracts for, for the longest time 40 years in fact had been settled by arbitration um, so they had no culture of striking they had no time to get ready for striking and all of that and when these fa- faculty associations went to the government and said we need a transition period in order to prepare our members for this we need to be able to develop our own savings on our own strike funds we need to be able to even just develop the bylaws to govern a strike, let alone discuss with our members the possibility of a strike, let alone have our members personally financially prepared for a strike. Mm-hmm. We need all of these things lined up before we can strike. You can't just change it on a moment's notice like that. And in, a, in meetings with the ministry and meetings with Marlon Schmidt himself, we were assured, no, 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 there will be a transition period. You guys will, will have an opportunity to, uh, to get ready and to be prepared for this and to prepare your members for it. So ultimately, though, the way the legislation happened was it was passed very quickly, and then it wasn't it wasn't even that there wasn't a transition period. They made the legislation to allow strikes and lockouts retroactive to the bill being tabled, which meant bargaining had already been in place and already going, and they simply changed the rules legislatively in the middle of bargaining. And obviously, a lot of these faculty associations just simply weren't ready for it. Uh, they didn't have the culture, they didn't have the infrastructure, and they didn't have the means to mount a strike. And it meant that they, well, a lot of them really took a walloping at the bargaining table. Th- those three things, moving from the biggest units and being kind of friendly and cutting a deal on a political level, then you move to the middle levels, and there's a little bit of kind of what you almost call palace intrigue, and you can kind of pull a fast one on them. And then you move down to the smaller units and you really hammer them. Like, this is not a collaborative labor relations regime. This is not... You know what they picture, what what you picture when you think of an even a social democratic government. This was actually very calculated, hardball that was designed to constrain wages. And David Shepard's quote in in, uh, in regards to that is really really instructive. In that he said, "Arbitration leads to higher salaries. We need to constrain salaries, so we did what we needed to do to constrain salaries. So that and there was a line that I didn't quote in the paper in the article, but uh, where he says something like um, something like more responsible contracts, as if the contracts they'd signed." were not freely freely negotiated by both parties and all of that but rather that they were irresponsible contracts that were signed.
0: One of the things that is so detrimental about what happened with uh, all of the relationships between the NDP and the public sector unions that you've outlined is that bargaining is such a massive opportunity for trade unions, it is the time when your members are most likely to listen to you, when they are most tuned in to what you have to say, when you most have the ability to move members in uh, the way that union leadership might want members to be moving, and they basically completely foreclosed on the opportunity to do it. Like, bargaining is the best time you have to politically educate your members and to get them involved in the union, and basically the NDP government took that ability away from public sector unions in Alberta. Well,
1: Exactly. And I think that it actually speaks to Rachel Notley's background as a labor lawyer and a labor relations officer, like a labor relations specialist for unions like UNA. Um, I think it really speaks to that sensibility that they do not consider strikes political in any sort of positive sense. They don't see it as something that draws proper lines in society where it illustrates actually how unjust our system is and it illustrates what's wrong. They see it as only a liability that needs to be managed. And so, so from her perspective, avoiding these kinds of strikes and from the general perspective, of the NDP as a whole, you don't want to put it all on Notley, but like, you generally don't want these strikes. They're things that need to be avoided, whereas I think that you're absolutely right that mobilizing the members in the public sector, and I'm speaking as a guy who lives in a rural community of 3,000 people, um, and, and these kinds of opportunities do have an opportunity to actually have the labor movement and the idea of socialism actually have a lot of appeal. Because it Mm -hmm. does illustrate that there's more to it than just simply paying dues and filing grievances.
2: Particularly for a party that was lacking a lot of the kind of on-the-ground infrastructure in a lot of places in Alberta when it came into government. It seems like it could have been a great opportunity to try to develop those ties and those links amongst uh, people that might be highly sympathetic to their cause.
0: Absolutely. Do that type of political education. Like, there is no better place to do political education on a picket line when people are actually living trade union values and kind of living with the consequences of their politics. Like, it is an immense opportunity.
1: Yeah, and that's somewhere where, like, again, and I I really want to emphasize this that it's not just the NDP that drops the ball on this, it's the unions that impose a horizon for political activity on themselves. Where, you know, why well, talk political education on the picket line when you can get everybody to just simply vote NDP and act like that's going to solve a problem?
2: So the, the price of oil uh, had started to drop in 2014 and layoffs and anxiety about people's livelihoods are um, part of what got the NDP elected in, in May 2015. Um, during the election period, you also had contrast uh, kind of created between Notley on the one side and PC-backed CEOs on the other However, once elected, uh, you write, the NDP did what any employer would do in a time of economic downturn. They used the opportunity to lower the costs uh, to the government treasury by bargaining wage freezes, which are effectively wage cuts when inflation is taken into account. How do you think this strategy contributed to the NDP's prospects in, in April of this year?
1: I mean, the simple fact is that nobody votes for the NDP in Alberta to simply manage things as they always have been. The whole point was that they were supposed to be something different, and they were supposed to actually basically fight for the little guy, for lack of a better term. And when the NDP failed to do that, when the NDP simply became another cautious machine they definitely managed some of the outrage and some of the the blistering attacks from some quarters but the simple fact is that the most enthusiastic supporters the people who genuinely thought it was a difference they stayed home there was no reason to there was no reason to think there's a lot of people in our society who are very upset and they're very justifiably upset the oil companies are happy to replace them with robots and lay them off and simply shuffle them out the door public sector employers are no better and the simple fact is that if you don't give people uh A clear plan and a clear idea on how you're fighting for their interests, they're not going to stick their neck out by voting for you or even bother lifting a finger. They're just going to simply stay home or worse, they'll vote for someone who's basically a con man promising easy answers like Jason Kenney.
2: I can't express
1: how much I love hearing that.
0: We agree a lot. We're just not very happy about it.
1: (laughs) And I mean, like, this is my life. I live in a rural community. This is the community I grew up in. I lived in Edmonton for a little while, but I'm a small-town guy. And I don't think that this place is irredeemably reactionary. There are definitely very organized right-wing forces in this place. But numerically, I think the progressives are there. They're just scattered and don't quite have their act together in the same way as the business interests do. And the simple fact is that this is we're not behind enemy lines. This is the front lines, and there's important fights here. But even when they were in government and even now, to get anybody from the mainstream, big institutional par- like parties like the NDP or the unions to really pay attention here... Um, it's really difficult. The only exception is AUP sometimes. They'll pay attention Uh, because they have a lot of members here. But generally speaking, rural Alberta is a write-off, and it's a real mistake and a liability.
0: So the Alberta NDP made changes to the Alberta Labor Relations Code in 2017. These changes included things like first contract arbitration, card check certification, automatic dues check-off being required in collective agreements, and increased access by union organizers to remote work sites, among other changes. What, in your opinion, was the goal of these changes?
1: All of those changes are easy, make it easier to get a union and make that union tamer. That is the entire point of all of those changes. So you get the institutional protections, which, again, makes a lot of business for labor lawyers and labor relations professionals and union staff like me, but it doesn't really empower workers. The actual laws that would actually empower workers to take action – things like anti-scab legislation or a ban on double-breasting, which is setting up another business um, parallel to your own business to move production to in order to avoid a union. Those sorts of things are perfectly legal still and and were never challenged under the NDP. Um, So basically, I think that the the general ethic of the NDP was to make unions more legalistic and less of a social movement. Um, It made a lot of power for labor lawyers and other people who are very good at playing the grievance and arbitration game. Um, It really didn't actually give workers much power at all.
0: Could you talk a little bit about anti-scab legislation and legislation to address double-breasting, why the labor movement would want those things, and why do you think the NDP refused to make those changes?
1: With anti-scab legislation, basically it's just simply it, it prohibits employers from hiring people to do the work while they're struck. Um, there's a lot of actually, like, very labor relations moderate centrist arguments in favor of it, and those are all fine and good. It does prevent violence on picket lines and th- those kinds of things. But really, the, the real, real strength of anti-scab legislation is it means that they can't just replace production when there's a strike. They can't just simply hire people up off the street. So I think that, that like, the labor movement really wants that uh, for obvious reasons. I think the reason the NDP didn't is basically because they were splitting the difference with the business lobby, and I think they sat down, probably with a bunch of labor relations experts, some people from the Alberta Labor Relations Board, maybe a couple of prominent arbitrators, and a few lawyers from either side, and they basically hashed it out, in the, and the, basically the deal between all of these Basically, lawyers who deal in employment law was this was the compromise we want. But the real reason why the stuff that actually empowers workers was off the table and the stuff that doesn't empower workers is because the simple fact is that unions are completely dominated by the legal system and they have no vision of their actual existence as stemming from solidarity and their own collective action, uh, independent of it. So basically, they defer to the lawyers. So basically, everything then becomes a legal strategy. Um, with double breasting, I think the reason why they didn't do it was very vociferous pushback from the, employ- uh, from the employers. I think that they really like being able to simply set up another business. Um, and I think that that was basically just another one of those ones where certain industries have a lot of clout, probably had a lot to do with the oil and gas sector in particular. Um, And this is speculation, but it's not completely uneducated speculation, and I think that they were basically really concerned about really alienating and angering that sector. And so they basically gave ground and compromise where they thought they could basically get them to back off on them a little bit. And I think we all saw how well that worked.
0: One of the most notable changes to the Alberta Labor Relations Code that was utilized the most by unions was first contract arbitration. Could you talk a little bit about who is put at an advantage with first contract arbitration and who is put at a disadvantage?
1: First contract arbitration, like in labor law, there's a phrase called sawing the baby, which is like King Solomon saying he's going to cut the baby in half. And like, I think that this is a perfect example of them basically trying to split the difference on on a labor law question, where basically the people who are advantaged the most are basically union leaders and labor lawyers. Uh, the people who are disadvantaged in equal parts are actually probably the employer and the workers. Um, this is a perfect example of how labor relations forces short-sighted and often stupid employers to behave themselves. And then what it also does is it takes the radical potential out of worker struggle and gets and gets workers to compromise for less. So basically, workers lose out a lot. Um, and the other thing, too, is with that whole thing is that employers, they do get one good thing out of it. If you've got a really recalcitrant board of directors and you're fighting with a the union, um, there's nothing better than arbitration for you to wash your hands of it. It means that you get to get yourself out of a situation. If you can't beat the union, then if you get arbitration, then you don't have to wear the, uh, wear the bad decision to the, uh, to, the, uh, to the board of directors.
2: You had some really great lines here, and so I just want to read directly from your piece. Uh, By refusing to take on industry directly, the NDP put themselves in a corner. Their compromises made them look weak and hypocritical without actually shoring up their power base. You can be loved by business and also say the wealthy are out of touch and have it too good.
0: So one of the questions I wanted to ask is that looking forward, how do you think trade unions in Alberta should relate to the NDP? Because one of the incredibly frustrating things that I have noticed is that where literally six months ago, you couldn't get the NDP to a picket line if their lives depended on it. Now they're all too happy to show up to every March demonstration, info picket, et cetera, et cetera, and just like show their trade union bona fides to, for the media and for their supporters to see. What, how should trade unions respond to this? I think the difficult
1: thing, again, is the Stockholm Syndrome kind of approach inside the labor movement to the NDP, so I'm going to give two answers. The first answer is what I would say my opening position when I'm talking to trade unionists is, and that's they shouldn't be invited in any official capacity if they really care and they aren't hypocrites. Tell them to show up and hold a sign like everybody else. They need to put in their time at the bottom. Uh, They need to actually be just simply ordinary Albertans and not people who are looking to get into power off the backs of labor. Second, if they are to speak and they are to show up in any official capacity and are to address crowds, we hand them speaking notes and we tell them what they're going to say. If they really are here to be the voice of labor in parliament or the legislature, uh, then the simple fact is that they need to subordinate their message to ours. Um, they need to be there to uh, say what we have to say, uh, not simply to make a pitch for us to vote for them again when it clearly went so badly last time. I think that like the stuff I just really want to drive home is that like unions can't count on political parties to handle politics for them. They're perfectly capable of being political in their own right. I think that often when they have to confront these questions directly themselves, there's a lot fewer moving pieces and it's a lot clearer and a lot starker. And I think that it gives them, I think, better positions come out of that than when they just simply try and get the NDP to do things for them.
0: That reminds me of one of the other things that I really enjoyed in this article was you mentioned that sometimes labor leaders like to think that their power derives from having a constituency that they can like call up, like being able to say like, I'm the president of X union, I'm speaking on behalf of however many tens of thousands of members in Alberta. But in reality, you argue the power of the labor movement comes from actually being able to mobilize and organize those members to take action on their own behalf and on behalf of their class.
1: Nobody outside the labor movement listens to a labor leader by virtue of their membership. Yeah, Uh, Nobody cares what a union leader actually has to say just simply by virtue of the fact that they in some formal sense represent 100,000 workers. The only time anybody listens to labor is when they think that labor is actually going to cause them an imminent problem uh, and where it's going to start costing a lot of people with money a lot of money. Um, Until then, the simple fact is that union leaders are mostly there outside of that to try and just simply sell things to their union members for them, uh, particularly politicians.
0: So if people want to find out more about your work or about work in a similar vein, where can they go and find that?
1: Well, I highly recommend you check out Organizing Work. There's also three podcasts on there called The Wobcasts that I think kind of spell out a little bit more of a theoretical framework of how some of us in the IWW approach trade unions. Um, and I think that there's some interesting stuff in there, but I, I really can't boost Organizing Work enough. I think it's a great resource.
0: Awesome. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast with us, Nick. We really appreciate it.
1: Hey, no problem, Kate. And Thanks, Joel.
0: Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, you can hear a longer version of this episode and many more on albertaadvantagepod.com. So long Calgary. Makes no difference
1: where
0: I go. You're the best hometown. I-